This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In March of 1978, Italy's former Prime Minister, Aldo Moro, was kidnapped in Rome by communist revolutionaries known as the Red Brigades. He would be held hostage for more than 50 frightening days. If you enjoyed these episodes and want to hear more like it, check out our series, Hostage. Every Thursday, we tell the stories behind the most gripping hostage situations and the people inside them. Follow Hostage for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode features discussion of kidnapping and violence that some people may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. The fiat jolted with a thud. 61-year-old former Italian prime minister Aldo Moro looked up sharply from his reading. It was just after 9 a.m. on March 16, 1978, in Rome, Italy, and the car carrying one of the most powerful men in the country had just been rear-ended. Aldo cursed under his breath. Today was the day that a project he'd spent years working on was finally coming to fruition. It was a project that could put an end to the bloodshed, terror, and chaos that had racked Italy for too long. There was no way he was going to be late. Aldo looked back at the car behind them, carrying the other half of his police escort. They looked as confused as he did. He turned back around to ask his driver what was going on. Suddenly, his bodyguard pushed him to the floor, shouting for him to get down. A split second later, machine gun fire riddled the car with bullet holes, and Aldo was trapped inside. This is Hostage, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell the stories behind the most captivating hostage situations and the people inside them. We'll also cover the psychological tactics used in kidnapping situations and what the human brain does when held captive. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Carter Roy. 
You can find episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Hostage for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And this is our first episode on the kidnapping of former Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro by social revolutionary terrorists known as the Red Brigades in Rome, Italy on March 16, 1978. This week, we'll explore the socio-political turmoil that led to the kidnapping. We'll get to know Aldo Moro, as well as the ringleaders of the Red Brigades. And we'll find out how the group planned and executed the dramatic kidnapping. Next week, we'll see how the high-profile hostage situation captured the Italian public's attention, even as it stymied the country's political leaders. We'll also explore how the incident ultimately backfired for everyone involved. The roots of Aldo Moro's kidnapping and the social and political chaos of 1970s Italy lie decades before the actual event. They can be found in the successful resistance against Mussolini's fascist regime and the creation of the Italian Republic in the wake of World War II. Mussolini's fascist regime had risen out of the turmoil and violence that plagued the Italian peninsula in the early 20th century. He promised a vision of order to counter the chaos and instability, but as soon as Mussolini took power, it became clear that the fascists' way of controlling the country meant persecution, imprisonment, or death for anyone who disagreed with him. It didn't take long for a new anti-fascist resistance to take hold, and when World War II broke out, the Italian resistance undermined Mussolini from within, ultimately helping to liberate their country. But the groups that formed the resistance were extremely diverse. They included anarchists, Catholics, Marxists, and capitalists. While they'd been able to put aside their differences when faced with Mussolini, their ideological disagreements reappeared in 1945. In the ashes of World War II's devastation, they argued about how Italy should be governed. By the time a new constitution was signed in 1947, deep political divisions had already been formed. While these ideologies competed, Italy's nascent parliamentary republic was struggling to rebuild the war-torn country. So when the U.S. offered a financial aid package, the new government gladly accepted. But this decision only increased Italy's political turmoil. The Cold War was beginning to shape global politics. Instead of siding with the communist Soviet Union, Italy aligned with the capitalist United States. This did not sit well with the communists and socialists who had fought in the resistance. And the remaining fascists weren't happy with the new association either. Following Mussolini's defeat, many of them had stayed in the police and military or joined extreme right-wing parties. They hoped to wedge their way back into the government, even though the majority of the country didn't trust them. Torn between extremes, Italians were primed for a moderate party. The only option that seemed to walk the line was the center-left Christian Democratic Party. The Christian Democrats blended modern democratic ideals with liberal Catholic values like equality and morality. They weren't inherently capitalist, 
But as Italy's majority party, they became associated with capitalism in the minds of both the Italian left and right. The shift to a capitalist economy transformed the country from a predominantly agrarian culture to an urban one. Old ways of life quickly died out, causing yet another crisis. People from the poor southern regions moved to the more prosperous north, exacerbating cultural tensions. The Sicilian Mafia and other criminal organizations expanded their spheres of influence and became more brazen and violent. By the late 60s, Italy had once again descended into violent turmoil. Far-left groups were waging a war against the status quo. The far-right wanted a return to fascism. Both sides carried out assassinations, robberies, and bombings as they struggled for control. Street protests often turned into clashes with the police. The years from the late 60s through the mid-1980s became known as the Years of Lead, named after the countless bullets fired. Then, in 1970, Renato Curcio, Margarita Cagol, and Alberto Franceschini, three devout, ideological, Marxist-Leninist communists in their early 20s, established a militant faction called the Red Brigades. Their goal was to conduct class warfare until they could bring about the long-awaited revolution and restore power to the people. But the Red Brigades had no intention of waiting around for the Italian Communist Party to gain power in Parliament. They viewed cooperation within the existing system as a betrayal of their ideals. Instead, they planned to use violence to incite the people to rise up. From the start, the Red Brigades firebombed factories, kidnapped fascists, maimed anyone who spoke out against them, and used other violent means to make themselves known. They quickly became one of the most prominent examples of radical left-wing terrorism in Europe, which both further alienated them from the Communist Party and gained them members from among Italy's disenfranchised youth. But even as the majority of Italians viewed them as terrorists, the Red Brigades were convinced they were fighting to save their country. According to the U.S. government report, The Sociology and Psychology of Terrorism, most terrorists see themselves as fighting for legitimate and noble social causes and don't view their actions as terrorism. This certainly seemed to be the case for the Red Brigades, whose ideology told them that they had to fight against the existing class system. Anyone who got in their way or represented the system was an enemy in this war. In June 1974, Curcio, Cagol, Franceschini, and approximately 17 of their comrades kidnapped conservative judge Mario Sosi from his home in Genoa. In exchange for his release, they demanded freedom for eight of their imprisoned comrades. The Red Brigades threatened to execute Judge Sosi unless the government cooperated. The Italian authorities were trapped. On principle, they did not negotiate with terrorists. Plus, giving in would mean releasing known criminals back onto the streets. But they also couldn't abandon a citizen, much less an important representative of the law. Ultimately, the decision-makers chose not to abandon the judge and agreed to release the prisoners. The Red Brigade saw this as a massive coup. They'd succeeded in bending the government to their will. It gave them confidence to be even bolder in the future. But as the Red Brigades celebrated their imminent victory, something changed. 
The judge, charged with releasing the prisoners, Francesco Coco, refused. He couldn't bring himself to let the terrorists win. The Red Brigade leaders were livid at the betrayal, and the team holding Judge Sosi captive argued over what to do. One of the most fanatical of these comrades, a well-educated former factory worker named Mario Moretti, argued that they should execute Judge Sosi. But in the end, leaders Curcio and Franceschini had the final say. They decided that they could win the PR battle if they released Judge Sosi anyway. By letting the judge go unharmed and holding up their end of the bargain, the Red Brigades would look magnanimous and reasonable, while the government would look cowardly and weak. But by choosing not to release the prisoners, Judge Coco had put a target on himself. Two years later, in 1976, he and his bodyguards were murdered in the street outside his home by Mario Moretti and five of his men. Judge Coco's murder rattled the government. That year, a number of the Red Brigade leaders, including both Curcio and Franceschini, were arrested and charged for terrorist activities. While the Italian justice system considered these ringleaders to be criminals, the Red Brigade saw them as prisoners of war, and it was their job to free their comrades. Following Curcio and Franceschini's arrests, the remaining Red Brigade leaders split up. They moved to different regions to make themselves harder for the authorities to find. They built new cells and planned new actions, certain that their revolution was close, though in reality, they never had more than several hundred active members. One of the most confident was Mario Moretti, the kidnapper who had advocated for Judge Sosi's murder. In order to avoid arrest, Mario moved to Rome in late 1976. There, he organized a cell of equally zealous comrades. Mario's goal was to strike a death blow to the capitalist U.S.-controlled government and get the Red Brigade leaders released. He just had to figure out how. And time was running out. The ruling Christian Democrats were making overtures to the Italian Communist Party, hoping to form a coalition that would give both parties broad governing power. If the Communist Party was neutralized by the establishment moderates, well, that would make it almost impossible for the Red Brigade's revolution to succeed anytime soon. Mario knew that everything the Red Brigades had done would go to waste if they didn't stop the coalition, and he was ready to do whatever it took. Coming up, we'll find out how the Red Brigades found their unlikely target. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. 
By the mid-1970s, Italy had been in turmoil or at war for most of the century. The Communist Red Brigade felt sure that they were on the verge of a major victory in their war against the capitalist state, led by the moderate Christian Democrats. Having held a parliamentary majority, more or less since 1945, the Christian Democrats had come to represent everything political extremists hated about the government. They had presided over the industrialization of ancient cities and allowed the U.S. to dictate both domestic and foreign policy. Not to mention, there had been countless political corruption scandals. And yet, the Christian Democratic Party kept getting elected. This was largely due to the Italian majority's wariness toward political extremes. The Christian Democrats represented the middle of the road, and no one symbolized this moderation more than Aldo Moro. Born in 1916, Aldo grew up in the southern region of Puglia under Mussolini's fascist regime. His mother was a devout Catholic, and Aldo followed in her footsteps. A natural scholar, he gravitated towards academia. He studied law and ultimately became a professor. Aldo was also interested in theology and Catholic philosophy, especially as they related to the law and government. He developed a liberal interpretation of Catholicism, believing deeply in the equality of all people and the necessity of helping others. As a result, Aldo wasn't comfortable with how the Vatican collaborated with the fascists during World War II. During the war, he teamed up with a number of like-minded fellow academics and lawyers. Together, they worked on a series of economic, legal, and political proposals on how to better govern the country. After Italy was liberated, first from Mussolini and then from the Nazis, Aldo and his collaborators officially formed their own group. They called it the Christian Democracy Party. But just as the country was divided, so were the Christian Democrats. Aldo's left-wing faction leaned socialist in their views, irritating the moderates who wanted the party to be more centrist. But Aldo earned everyone's respect with his thoughtfulness and circumspection. This steadfastness paid off. Between the late 1940s and early 60s, Aldo became one of the most reliable and trusted members of the party. He was a quiet man who always wore dark suits and seemed more comfortable as a professor than in the public spotlight. If anything, he was boring, a dedicated public servant, happily married with four children. In fact, Aldo's lack of interest in being a public figure was part of what made him a good political leader. According to the political philosophers Amy Gutman and Dennis Thompson, political campaigning requires a more dogmatic, uncompromising mindset, whereas effective governing requires a so-called compromising mindset, or willingness to respectfully listen to people with different principles. As someone uninterested in campaigning, either in public or amongst his colleagues, Aldo was naturally more disposed to a compromising mindset, even as he was guided by his own core values. This ultimately made him a valuable asset to both the Christian Democratic Party and to the Italian government as a whole. Aldo began his political career as Italy's Undersecretary for Foreign Affairs before serving as Minister of Justice and then Minister of Education. He was elected party secretary to the Christian Democrats in 1959. And in December 1963, at 47 years old, 
Aldo was elected prime minister of Italy. His predecessor had moved to the right, and so many of Aldo's colleagues looked forward to his more progressive left-wing agenda. After all these years behind the scenes, he'd finally be able to make some sweeping reforms. But Aldo saw how the country was struggling with the post-war changes. Across Europe, radical political movements were taking hold. Italians needed stability, not dramatic change. And so, to the frustration of many, he maintained the status quo. He pushed through what social reforms he could, but for most of his five years in office, he made small compromises and deals to keep the more extreme parties in line. His goal was to keep the peace and help as many people as possible. But despite Aldo's best attempts, unrest and extremism took hold. In 1968, at the beginning of the violent years of lead, Aldo's term as prime minister ended. The next year, the 53-year-old was named Minister of Foreign Affairs. He swiftly set about renegotiating Italy's position in the Cold War. Aldo was a thoughtful negotiator who recognized that compromise was a necessary tool. However, U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger was an absolutist when it came to fighting communism. When Aldo suggested that the Christian Democrats might need to work with the communist and socialist to stabilize Italy, Kissinger angrily told him that it would be a betrayal of the U.S. Few world leaders at the time would have dared to push back against the U.S. government, but Aldo was different. He felt comfortable opening a dialogue with someone he disagreed with, and he would use the same tactic to heal dangerous political divisions at home. In the mid-1970s, the Italian Communist Party was gaining support as more people left the Catholic Church and, by default, left the Christian Democratic Party. If the Christian Democrats lost power, many of the people who supported traditional power structures would begin joining fascist parties. If that happened, the guerrilla terrorism that was already taking place on Italy's streets would descend into all-out civil war a mere three decades after World War II had decimated the country. In 1976, the Italian Communist Party won the second largest percentage of the national votes, placing them only a few points behind the Christian Democrats. It was the perfect time for Aldo to implement a plan he'd been secretly cultivating for a while. He convinced the current prime minister and the other leaders of the Christian Democrats to form an alliance with the Communist Party. It may have sounded shocking, but Aldo knew what he was doing. The communists, he argued, had long since separated themselves from violent leftist groups like the Red Brigades because they recognized that they could get more done in government. A coalition with the opposing party would be better than losing to the communists in the next election. It took a lot of convincing, but eventually Aldo's reasoning won. Now, they had to convince the head of the Communist Party, Enrico Berlinguer. He needed less convincing than Aldo might have anticipated. Enrico had seen how the right-wing military had violently overthrown the Marxist government in Chile just a few years earlier. And knowing how much of the Italian military was still fascist made him nervous. Additionally, as the Italian Communist Party had distanced themselves from the violent terrorist groups, they had also moved further from the Soviet sphere of influence. Aldo's coalition gave Enrico a good reason to break ties with the Kremlin and focus on so-called Eurocommunism. 
Certainly, there was no guarantee that this compromise would work, but Aldo Moro was hopeful. As both a scholar and an experienced politician, he was nervous about the possibility of one-party rule, but he would deal with the problems as they came. It was more important to unite the country and stifle the violent extremists. For the moment, his primary concern was the Americans who would oppose any collaboration with communists. And in Italy, extremists of every variety were panicked. The fascists recognized that a coalition between the centrist and the left meant their days of influence were numbered. As fears spread through the fascist ranks, the more conservative moderates worried that the right-wingers would try to start a civil war or stage a coup. Nonetheless, in late 1977, news of the possible compromise hit the press. The Red Brigades were furious. They were a small extremist faction already, and they realized that a coalition between the Greater Communist Party and the Christian Democrats would ultimately deplete their base of support. Many left-thinking citizens wouldn't see the need for an armed revolution with a communist party in power. In Rome, 31-year-old ideologue Mario Moretti and his Red Brigade cell saw the decision as the Communist Party's final betrayal. They needed to do something that would both end the compromise and incite the workers' revolution. When they landed upon it, it seemed so obvious. One of their most successful operations had been the kidnapping of Judge Sosi less than two years earlier. This time, they needed to aim even higher. Coming up, the Red Brigades put their plan into action. Now back to the story. In late 1977, Italy was on the verge of a grand political compromise. But while the proposed coalition between the moderate Christian Democrats and the Communist Party might bring some measure of peace to Italy, it also threatened the country's extremists. The militant Red Brigades knew that this compromise could spell their doom. In Rome, 31-year-old Mario Moretti and his particular cell of the Red Brigades had already decided they had to take action. They would simultaneously destroy the moderate government and incite their workers' revolution through one carefully planned attack. They were going to kidnap Aldo Moro himself. Once they decided on their course of action, Mario Moretti's cell immediately got to work. In order to successfully kidnap a government leader, they would have to do their homework. They started tracking Aldo's daily movements. They trailed him to and from his five different offices and learned his favorite walks and restaurants. They discovered that every morning on his way to work, Aldo stopped to pray at his local church. They would depend on this daily activity to coordinate the rest of their attack. Unlike most kidnappers, they weren't planning to keep things quiet. On the contrary, they wanted to make a scene and still get away with it. Leaving witnesses would only show the public how powerful they were. With this in mind, they decided to grab the politician somewhere public. They selected a street corner on the way to Aldo's church. Then they figured out how to force his car to stop, how to ambush his bodyguards, and which getaway car they'd throw Aldo into. By this point, all of the approximately 20 members on the team had participated in several violent attacks. They knew how to drive tactically and operate the machine guns they'd be using. 
But even as they planned and prepared, only Mario and one of the other leaders, a man named Prospero Gallinari, knew the whole picture. They gave their fellow comrades only enough information to do their specific jobs. One woman was told to rent an apartment with certain room specifications, though she wasn't told what it would be for. Others outfitted the apartment with supplies their hostage might need, including soap and extra bedding. By late February 1978, the operation was ready to go. They'd practiced, and Mario was sure he'd thought through every component. All that was left was to decide what day they were going to act. It had to be soon before the coalition officially started. They also wanted to pick a day that would maximize the dramatic effect. And they didn't have to wait long. On March 11th, 1978, the coalition was officially announced. The deal had been finalized and would be put into action in just five days. Nothing could be better than to kidnap the mastermind of the coalition on the very day the new government would be inaugurated, March 16th. On the morning of March 16th, 1978, 61-year-old Aldo Mora was feeling cautiously optimistic. It was a big day, and he hoped it would be a good one. By 9 a.m., Aldo's wife and his two youngest children had already left for the day. He kissed his two-year-old grandson and headed downstairs to meet his driver and his bodyguard. Like most European politicians at the time, Aldo didn't have a big security detail, just a driver, bodyguard, and three police escorts in another car. Because of their lack of experience with firearms, the men weren't armed. In fact, their supply of machine guns were kept in a bag in the trunk. No one believed they would be needing them. Aldo had requested a bulletproof car at some point, but he never got one. After all, not even the Italian president himself rode in a bulletproof car. Little did Aldo know, it might have completely changed the day's events. Aldo climbed into the waiting Fiat with a couple briefcases. He chatted with the driver and bodyguard as they got in. After all these years together, the men were all good friends. The car pulled away, followed closely by their escort. Aldo pulled out the newspapers for his daily perusal. He was especially curious to see what the sensationalist Italian press had to say about the new coalition. As he skimmed the news, Aldo couldn't help but feel like the hardest part was behind him. There was still a lot of work to do, of course, but the coalition had been agreed upon. The country might finally be able to stabilize, and he might get to see his party agree to some of the left-wing reforms he'd always wanted. But all this business would have to be secondary. First, he had to go to church. Much of the country had stepped away from Catholicism in the wake of the church's collaboration with Mussolini. Aldo's faith, however, had remained his guide as a public servant. They were halfway to the church and had just turned a corner when Aldo's driver spotted a white car up ahead. It was turning around in the middle of an intersection. Aldo's driver slowly pulled up to the stop sign. The driver in front of him seemed confused about where they were going. Aldo didn't even look up as the car stopped. His driver waited for the woman to finish her turn, but she didn't seem able to maneuver her car. Suddenly, 
another car that had appeared to be parked bumped into the escort car behind Aldo's Fiat. This pushed it forward into the Fiat, which in turn jolted forward, bumping into the white car in the intersection. Aldo looked up from his papers, surprised at the jolt. Just then, a man and woman jumped out of the white car. At first, it seemed like they were checking the damage from the fender bender. But then, the pair reached into their car and pulled out machine guns. They riddled the front of Aldo's car with bullets. Simultaneously, more men jumped out of nearby cars to fire on the escort car. Aldo's bodyguard turned in his seat and pushed his boss's head down. A split second later, a bullet pierced the bodyguard's heart, killing him. Aldo barely knew what was happening as he huddled behind the driver's seat, listening to his friends being murdered. Surely this was all some mistake. Yes, Italy was dangerous these days, but he couldn't believe someone would come after him. He was trying to make things better. But within a minute, all five of Aldo's guards were dead. Only one of the men in the escort car had even had time to reach for his gun before he was killed. When the machine gun stopped, one of the gunmen yanked Aldo's door open and pulled him out. He cried out in shock and asked what on earth they wanted from him. But the gunman didn't reply. He just pushed Aldo into a waiting vehicle and climbed in after him. Then they took off, leaving behind the five dead guards. One of the most powerful men in Italy was now at the mercy of the Red Brigades. Thanks again for tuning into Hostage. Next week, we'll find out what happened when the Red Brigades started to release letters from Aldo in the press. We'll also take a look at the difficulty of negotiations with ideological kidnappers, for whom chaos is as much of a goal as a tactic. For more information on the kidnapping of Aldo Moro, amongst the many sources we used, we found Richard Drake's book, The Aldo Moro Murder Case, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Hostage and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Hostage, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Hostage on Spotify, just open the app and type Hostage in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. In the meantime, don't take your freedom for granted. Hostage was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Isabella Way, and Paul Mahler. This episode of Hostage was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Irma Blanco and Carter Roy. 